You're listening to. And hey, welcome to Books and Boba, a book club and podcast featuring books by Asian and Asian American authors. My name is Marvin Yue. And I'm Rira Yu. And we are here today with an author chat with Sage Contunio about their debut graphic novel, The Glass Scientists, um, a an alternate history of Victorian era sci-fi um, graphic novel uh, about Dr. Jekyll slash Mr. Hyde and his society of not mad scientists, but rogue scientists. As always, Books and Bulba is supported by our listeners at patreon.com slash books and Bulba, where our patrons can have access to our members-only Discord server, as well as our monthly bonus um, podcast, Bulba Chat. So if you're interested in supporting the Books and Bulba and being a bigger part of our community, um, head on over to Patreon and uh, become a member. Um, but yeah, we had a great chat with um, Sage about their journey into becoming a graphic novelist by way of animation, as well as their inspirations for uh, for the graphic novel. Yeah, and it was really fun reading uh, The Glass Scientist. We've read books before that's set in Victorian era, and it's always fun to see an author's take on, like, what would it be if, you know, there was magic or if there was mad science? You know, there's something yeah. about that era that really invites a lot of speculative uh fiction and like creativity to it. So it was really nice to uh, jump into uh, Sage Contugno's world of mad scientists. And it was actually like a lot lighthearted than I thought it would be <laughs> because, you know, you have like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. It's like, it's a pretty, it's legit gothic literature. To So to have something that is, you know, fun and colorful, it was quite a nice change of pace for us. And it doesn't hurt that Sage populate their world with a cast of diverse characters too. That's always cool to see in historical fiction. Um, but yeah, please enjoy our chat with Sage Coutinho. And we are here with Sage Contugno, who is a queer and mixed-race Victorian horror nerd and a director, writer, and storyboard artist in the animation industry. They have previously worked on projects such as Gravity Falls, The Owl House, and Star vs. the Forces of Evil. And they are here today to talk about their first graphic novel, The Glass Scientist, which was released last month for Spooky Month. It was very fitting. Welcome to the show, Sage. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah. A bummer we couldn't get you in for Spooky Month, uh, <laughs> but we, you know, we were and I, we, we, our dockets are very full. So it's, it's a good yeah. thing that we mm -hmm. have so many Asian, Asian American authors to talk to. And we're really excited yeah. to bring you on. I think you're our, our third graphic novelist we've had to Ooh. chat with, right? Mm -hmm. Nice. I, yeah. I think so. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we've we've been doing this podcast for a while now, so it's it's hard to keep track. But uh, you come from an animation background, like I said, uh, when mm -hmm. I was introducing you. Uh, so can you tell us how you fell into the world of art and then into writing? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think um, 
I've been telling stories since, you know, as long as I could remember. Um, I think for me, um, art and writing always kind of evolved at the same time. It was always just, you know, some kind of storytelling, some way to express the thoughts that are in my head. Um, I think I started kind of drawing very seriously when I was in middle school. Um, you know, I think I was born in 1990. So I think a lot of like a lot of kids my age grew up watching, you know, the Disney Renaissance films, your, you know, Lion King, Little Mermaid, that sort of thing. Um, and for whatever reason, around that time, I started to revisit them. And I was like, oh, like, these aren't just like, good kids movies. These are actually, there's a lot of artistry that goes into them. There's a ton of skill and, you know, truly the, the artists who worked on those films are some of the most, you know, talented and, uh, you know, artists in the world. Um, and I started to really appreciate that and really appreciate what that unique medium could bring to stories. Um, and so I started to study them and started to really pursue that. Um, and I eventually decided to go to, um, uh, CalArts, which is a school here in Southern California. Um, it's sort of the premier animation school. Um, it has a lot of, you know, a lot of the directors from, you know, the 90s went there. It still pumps out tons of very, ta- a lot of talent out of that space. Um, and it was through them that I actually got my first job. Um, my first job was on the show Gravity Falls. Um, and um, I believe my the way I got that job was through um, a previous professor was a character designer and he was kind of able to get me in um, lots of CalArts folks on that show. Um, And yeah, that was kind of my overall quick little journey into the industry. Um, And I think animation is such a great medium for, you know, for visual storytelling. Um, It's very, it's very similar to comics in that space. I always consider them kind of be, you know, sister mediums. So in a way it was very natural for me to kind of, work in one and then kind of slide into the other, other as I've done with this book. <laughs> yeah. So this is an uh, animation podcast now, because I'm curious. <laughs> okay. um, what is, what, so what was your, your specialty in animation? Like what were you responsible for at mm-hmm. Gravity Falls and how did that evolve? Because I know um, animation as a, a medium has, has evolved a lot, in, especially in the last like mm-hmm. few decades uh, with the advent of like computers and, and uh-huh. CGI and things like that. So. Um, so I've actually worked um, in 2D animation. So the type of animation that I do hasn't changed a ton um, since I think what, when people like think animation kind of before your CG, before your DreamWorks and Pixar, um, they're going to think of 2D animation. And that's that's also what I do. Um, computers do aid a little bit here and there. They help with coloring. They can speed up some processes. But the basic skills involved are actually pretty much the same um, as they've always been. It's you know, us drawing on, well, <laughs> paper in our case onto a screen, but it's the same. It's just a a digital paper essentially. Um, And my part of that process specifically um, is what's called storyboarding. Um, And it's a little bit difficult to sum up very quickly, but um, it's kind of a combination of a lot of things that happen in live action. It's a little bit of editing. It's a little bit of acting. It's a little bit of um, pacing tone. Um, What we basically do is we take, we go from a script, which obviously, you know, we all understand that words on paper and we take the first crack at like, okay, if the script is just, you know, dialogue and action, action lines, we're choosing, you know, what shots are we using to convey this? What, how, how are the characters acting in this scene? When are we cutting? When are we, you know, how, where is the camera in space? Um, you know, what is the overall pacing of the episode? It's balancing a whole lot of things and kind of visualizing what the final episode will be, um, you know, very quickly at a much cheaper cost than actually producing that final animation. Um, but in a way, it's a, it's very similar to what I think directing would be for live action, um, but drawing it. Cool. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned like 
Disney earlier, but I'm also a 90s kid. Uh, we're the same age. And uh, I feel like we really did grow up during like a renaissance of like animated shows and like not just like American shows, but also like the animes that got dubbed and brought over. And when I think about how like some of those animes, they like there there was like LGBTQ uh, themes in them, but like it just kind of like flew over the mainstream producers uh, heads. I'm just curious as to like what uh what shows, what uh, anime series that like kind of helped you on your gender identity search? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, you say that it went over people's heads. I mean, I think famously, um, Sailor Moon was edited oh, yeah. to yeah, <laughs> making, were, making cousins, the girlfriend's cousins. I, like, yeah, I feel ugh, like that's made it much not, worse. <laughs> yeah, the vibes <laughs> yeah. were off on that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I, I what I think was also interesting for Sailor Moon was that like. For I'm not sure if you've seen the whole series. Oh yeah, yeah. Like how they didn't air season five at all because they were like, we can't figure out how to even warp these gender fluid characters into we we can't censor them, we can't figure them out. Like for the so the sta- Sailor Starlights <laughs> are a very interesting um, gender case there specifically. Um, however, I actually didn't discover Sailor Moon properly until college. Um, for some reason, I skipped over it. I was actually more of like. Digimon girly. Oh my God. Um, I love Digimon. Wow. (laughs) Yes. Um, I'm a little bit of a weirdo where like my favorite season is actually season two uh, with like the, like the Digimon emperor and like, Oh my God. It's my favorite season too. Really? Okay. I feel like that's not common. I feel like people usually like season three. Okay. (laughs) That's cool. Um, I was obsessed with, I I really love like villains. I really like the little evil kid. Uh, Kenichi Joji was my favorite. Um, But yeah, it was definitely Digimon girly. Um, I think in terms of like gender specifically, um, I really liked um, the show Oran Host Club, which came out, I think, 2006, I want to say. And I feel like that is like, to this day, is it's such a good show. Um, I mean, there are certain things which, you know, haven't aged super well just in terms of, um, you know, I think things that we understand more. I think the the terminology they use in the show is a little bit outdated sometimes. Um, But for those who don't know, it's a show about a girl who sort of, who accidentally ends up cross-dressing in this boys host club. Um, And a host club is basically um, beautiful men who serve you in a restaurant or a cafe setting. And it's this very kind of like idealized, very shoujo, very tropey, but also very much like intentionally like playing with tropes. It's very comedic. It's very funny um, of just kind of playing around with, gender roles playing around with gender expression um i will also say just from an animation point of view like the animation timing and comedy is still just like oh it is so good it is still some of my favorite stuff of what they're able to do and like i like geek out about their use of like mood animation so i feel like just from like their handling of comedy is so super good but definitely um i think oh my god i'm messing up the main character's name is hotter he and I'm trying not to say Haruhi Suzumiya because that's not her name. <laughs> that's a that's different, a different anime. <laughs> that's a different anime, which I also enjoyed. Um, but um, Haruhi from Oran Host Club, um, the way that she experiences and, des- and describes gender. Um, she, I don't think, would describe herself as gender fluid, but she gives like serious like non-binary vibes of just like she is constantly like, oh, I just don't really care about this. She's so chill about cross-dressing once she starts doing it. And her complete agnosticism towards her, you know, assigned gender at birth 
it was I I wouldn't have had the the language or the ability to to say like oh that's what I am at the time um because I feel like you know non-binary identity wasn't really you know in many ways was not discussed until you know the last you know recent years and definitely not when I was in high school but watching that anime I feel like I was always kind of like oh why can't we have more characters like this um but I wouldn't be able to articulate why in the moment you know yeah, that's really interesting because I have a lot of uh, friends who also like had this journey with Warren High School Host Club. Um, mm-hmm. They would be like, oh, my God, like how do he is not like I feel like she's non-binary. And I'm like, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, we didn't really have that vocab back Did not. We were in mm-hmm. high school. So it really mm-hmm. was like a new world for a lot of like um, 90s kids who were still closeted or still trying to figure mm-hmm. out like. Uh, terminology to to figure out their identity so yeah yeah I think that anime is was such a great vehicle for that especially in the 90s and 2000s and I think one of the downsides of American animation is that you know it's seen as such you know a for kids thing and of course animation is a medium it was it's not a genre so really it's not for anybody but (laughs) it's been so pigeonholed in America to be seen as you know either for kids or you know your South Park or your very graphic um you know blue-eyed samurai where you got to get the violence in there um (laughs) and so there's nothing really for teens specifically um and i think one of the particular downsides of like being for kids in america specifically is that kids stuff gets funneled down through like you're either for girls or for boys um and unfortunately the reason for that is because you know animation is tied to advertising so much so we need to tell the advertisers like oh it's a boy show so we can sell them Gotta you know sell those action guns. figures yeah yeah or is it a girl show so we can sell them dolls and you know there were unfortunate instances where you know we had a show like i think this happened with uh, the legend of cora back in the day where it was actually pretty it had done pretty well but it was attracting the incorrect demographic and so the advertisers <laughs> got mad and so they pulled it so like you, you can't even you can't even, you know, buck expectations and be like, oh, well, actually, everybody likes this because it'll be like, but it's not the correct demographic. Um, and <laughs> yeah. the the net effect of this is that gender roles end up being so strictly enforced traditionally within American animation. Um, and certainly, you know, Japan itself is a very gendered society. There's lots of we're, they are by no means a, you know, gender fluid utopia, but for whatever reason, within this particular niche of entertainment, perhaps it's because it's super low budget and people don't pay attention. There's lots of politics involved. But, you know, for whatever reason, there have been so many series that have been allowed to explore a wider range of gender expression in ways that I think without it, a lot of people in the West wouldn't have had exposure to. And I think that's really cool. Yeah. This is an anime podcast now. We've switched genres yes. yet again. <laughs> um, yeah, it's interesting because even in Japan, like anime, especially like mecha anime, right? They're they're designed mm. to sell model kits, but they can tell mm. stories about mm-hmm. war crimes and child soldiers, right? Like there's much more leeway. God, there. I wish I could tell stories about war crimes and child soldiers here in, in America. <laughs> there, there's so much more. Yeah, there's just, there is just so much more range of anime that you can tell more mature stories. Even in a show like Digimon, I think had some like very mature, like, again, not like graphic, but, you know, just very, you know, I felt very emotionally <clears throat> thoughtful, you know, Mamoru Hosada, which is, who is one of my favorite directors came from Digimon. And I, I, I wish we had more opportunities to do that here yeah. in the U.S. 
Yeah, definitely. I feel like um, so I'm a little bit older than you two. I was born in mm-hmm. 84. So the American shows I grew up with all had to have like moral lessons, right? Like G.I. Mm-hmm. Joe, knowing is <laughs> half the battle. So like uh-huh. when I discovered, you know, Japanese animation, when I was on vacation in Taiwan, it was like, you can tell these stories using animation and they can actually like say something and have like morally great characters. It's it's pretty. Yeah, it was it was a revelation. Um, but yeah, let's um, let's switch back to our our books graphic novel podcast. Um, so you worked in animation. Tell us how you got from there to now publishing your graphic novel. You had like a prologue graphic novel, right? Like, oh yeah, yeah. Going so, into mm-hmm. uh, Glass Scientist, yeah. Yeah. So um, I'd always had an interest in comics back in high school. I did a bunch of like little web comics. You know, I think very. I come from a very like manga inspired place. Um, in terms of, you know, comic sensibilities, I wasn't much of like a superhero person, definitely more like indie comics or manga were definitely my space. Um, and so I tried, you know, do a couple of those in high school, couldn't commit because I was in high school. <laughs> um, um, but when I entered the animation industry, um, you know, I definitely love working in that space. It's really, I've learned so much. At the same time, you are largely committing to telling other people's stories for your entire career. And I was like, well, I really wanted an opportunity to tell my own stories again. Um, so I'd had the idea for the glass sign just kind of bopping around in my head for a while. I had an outline that I wanted to work off of, but I also knew that it was going to be super heckin' long. And I'd heard the very good advice that, you know, for your first serious comic project, you really shouldn't do an epic. You should do something that is small, that is contained, so you can take it from beginning, middle to end, all the way through. So I decided to write a little prologue comic um, and then to produce it um, through Kickstarter, which is how that got made. Um, and that was really, really fun. Um, it was, I learned a lot, again, just taking it all the way through. I got to kind of learn the medium a bit more. Because um, like I said, although comics is very, very similar to animations, a lot of very similar skill sets. There are some things that are a little bit different. I still, to this day, um, grapple with word bubbles. <laughs> um, animation brain wants to fill up the whole frame with art. So like, it's always like, oh no, I have to <laughs> have words here too. Um so there were definitely some growing pains I was able to learn on that. Um, also, I kind of liked the process of self-publishing. That was actually really fun and kind of ended up helping me again when I was doing my little pre-order campaign, even though I'm traditionally published now, um, of just, you know, like, where do I get things made? How do I get little extra bonus stuff that people like, you know, stickers or pins and all this sort of things. And it's fun to have a more personal one-on-one relationship with your readership. Um, so those were all things that I learned during the Kickstarter um, and then from there, um, I just kind of launched right into uh, The Glass Scientist. Um, I actually started as a webcomic. So for the first eight years or so of its life, it lived. It actually was fully online. Um, and it wasn't until the summer of 2020 that um, a literary agent kind of randomly reached out to me um, and was like, hey, I saw your art on Twitter. Um, have you ever thought about doing a graphic novel? And um, I was just coming off of um, a not very successful attempt at getting an animation show greenlit of that I developed myself. Um, it got swept up in the 2020 of it all. So I was like very down in the dumps. I was just like, no, I do not want to do that. <laughs> but I do have this web comic that I've been doing for like a billion years. Do you want to just publish that? Thinking she's obviously going to say no. Um, but my lit agent uh, turned out to be like a, I honestly like a very true fangirl, you know, like she is, um, she has two dogs named um, Zuko and Iroh, if anyone 
Oh my God, that's so um, Avatar. So like she got the story, like she got this again, very, you know, anime inspired, very, you know, heightened, but emotionally grounded story that I was trying to tell. Um, And she was able to, you know, match me with, um, you know, an editor and a publisher who would also get that. And, you know, that's how I took it from webcomics all the way to a real book. It's interesting how like you already had the work mm-hmm. like on hand and then you yeah. just said, here you go, you can publish this because mm-hmm. um, from doing this podcast and just like talking with other uh, graphic novelists, it's it's a totally different process. Sometimes mm-hmm. they don't even have control over uh, who the artist is going to be. And it's a lot mm-hmm. of back and forth with how mm-hmm. the story is going to develop. But you already had the story developed. And yeah, yeah I mean, it's very, was- very unique. It was a real surprise to me the whole way through Um, because, you know, like I am not at all against, you know, a back and forth editorial process and, you know, making changes in animation. Like, like truly everything can get changed at any one point in time. So I'm very used to like, you know, like in animation, you can get like, you know, page one rewrites have to start over from scratch. You you just have to be like, okay, sure. So I'm not all opposed to that entire process. It was just that like, you know, if when it came to the editorial process for this book, I had to just be like, dude, I would love to make those changes, but it's already done. And I just have to keep going. The train is already out the gate on this one. So again, I think I have to you know, hand that to my agent again, where I think she specifically found people who would be chill with that and who could, you know, roll the punches and would understand that, you know, hey, as nice as it would be to, you know, maybe do like a really intense editorial pass, to some extent, this is an already kind of a known quantity. Um, so I, I feel very fortunate that, you know, that it was all working out for me because honestly, right up until I think I got the, the letter of the offer of publication, I was just like, man, there's, this isn't going to work out. No one's going to actually do this. It, it, it seemed absolutely crazy. So it's, it's still kind of surreal that it really exists in the world. Okay. So before we go further into talking about the glass scientists, mm-hmm. um, can you, Give our listeners a brief synopsis of what your graphic novel is about. Yes. Um, So um, The Glass Scientist is my YA debut graphic novel. Um, It is going to be one of uh, three volumes. um, And it's a series of reimagining characters from classic Gothic science fiction, following the story of a young Dr. Henry Jekyll, um, as he tries to create a safe haven for mad scientists in a treacherous alternate Victorian London. Um, and of course he's, there's a lot of buried secrets, um, and we're going to see other, you know, famous mad scientists such as Dr. Frankenstein and the invisible man showing up. So like I said, it's a big mashup, um, but really focused on, you know, the story of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde stories of split identity. Um, and specifically, um, my, why I was originally drawn to that story, I've been kind of obsessed with Jekyll and Hyde since I was in high school, um, was for me, it was very kind of informed by mixed identity in general and feeling like you are kind of like two halves that don't, neither of which fully fit into any one particular space. Um, you know, as we mentioned in my intro, um, I am queer, I'm specifically bisexual, so kind of like the bi not fitting in one space or the other, non-binary doesn't fit one space or the other, and mixed, uh, specifically I'm half Japanese. So um very much that's always been kind of my experience moving through the world so I've always been really drawn to stories about mixed identity yeah I mean what do you love specifically about um like Victorian sci-fi and gothic horror stories I think that's a very interesting uh topic and um just interest to have since like high school because also like we talked about like 
queerness in mm-hmm. anime, but I feel like there there's like a lot of queerness in Victorian literature as well. If you look at Dracula and mm-hmm. uh, you know Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde, there's a mm-hmm. there's a little bit of just gay seasoning in there. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I think um, my interest in kind of like Victorian culture and kind of like British culture in general actually comes from my mom. Uh, my mom is the the Japanese side of the family, but for some reason, she's always loved like, Eng- she's a big like Anglophile. Um, so I don't know what that connection is between, you know, uh, where, where that came from even necessarily. Um, but I, w- I always kind of grew up with this appreciation for, you know, your Jane Austen, Charles Dickens, um, and kind of classic literature, literature in general. Um, but I was kind of the one who wandered into kind of like the weird side of it and the kind of the, you know, gas lab fantasy, slightly magical, slightly sciencey space of it. And I think it was this kind of desire to kind of like queer it. A little bit. Um, I think the Victorian era is so interesting because I feel like it really highlights to me so many constructions about the modern world because I feel like so many of those constructions were invented kind of during the Victorian era. Um, You know, our concepts of uh, kind of strict gender roles were sort of solidified during the Victorian era. You had this idea of, you know, separate spheres, like the men's, the, the sphere of men is in the public sphere and the, you know, in the household is where women belong. Um, And they could be so strict at times. And I think sometimes when you have that strictness, um, it causes, um, you know, anything that doesn't fit into those special boxes to kind of like need other outlets to, (laughs) to find expression. Um, And so I think as a result, like during the Victorian era, you did have these kind of vibrant, you know, queer subcultures that kind of popped out out of necessity because, you know, in the mainstream culture, they were kind of trying to find ways to kind of tamp that down. Um, I also think just from just like a simple aesthetics point of view, um, I was just um, uh, one of the other queer authors that I follow a lot is um, Nate Stevenson, who did Nimona, um, and he just did a little blog update about kind of feeling um, hemmed in by, you know, modern day gender expression, you know, and tr- being drawn to a, like a more masculine space, but finding like men's clothing just so restrictive and so kind of plain and bland, which I kind of agree with. Um, but if you go back in history um, and, you know, Victorian era and also earlier, you there's a lot more range and kind of whimsicalness in how men could dress particularly. So I think I've always been drawn to like a type of masculinity, but not one that is tied to what to me feels like a quite restrictive sense of like modern masculinity. Um, I mean, of course, Victorian masculinity was also like super boxed in in its own ways, but it's, it's different. And so it feels a little bit more fun um, to kind of play with. Yeah. I was going to say when you ask like why, how someone not from the culture could be interested in like being Anglophile. I was like, well, their suits are pretty dope. Like the suits they are dope. dress really mm-hmm. nice. It's like, yeah. um, you know, me personally, I have a fascination with like 1920 Shanghai because those suits mm. were really dope too back mm-hmm. in those days. Um, even though, you know, it carries with it all the specters of colonization, imperialism and all, and all that. Yeah. Um, yeah I mean, give credit words due. Mm-hmm. I mean, like colonialism is bad, but when you have like oh, the, good the drip fashion, is good, right? it's like mm-hmm. the aesthetics are good. You're like, okay, okay. Yeah. Oh yes, absolutely. Um, yeah. And something I really love about science fiction is kind of reading the it's like you know science fiction authors extrapolate their stories from what they see 
progress going on. So it's kind of interesting when you read older sci-fi, it's like, what what were the social and I guess like practical issues that, that kept these authors up at night, right? Like your book is interesting because it is a alternate historical fiction. So you're kind of using the sci-fi tropes, but t- telling it in the past. Can you tell us about like how you approach this type of alternate sci-fi historical setting, like mm-hmm. all those intersect? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, speaking of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde in particular, um, I think that the themes and the things that um, Robert Louis Stevenson, the original author, was thinking about are still, you know, universal human concerns, regardless, even though, you know, technology has moved on, society has moved on um, in many ways. Um, you know, the concerns of Victorian era, that desire to put things in little boxes and the the fact that reality does not conform in real, to little boxes is still something we're very much grappling with now. I mean, again, looking at gender and how much, you know, conservatives are trying to push people back into, you know, biological assigned gender at birth and this deep anxiety that like, you know, oh, if we expand beyond that, just like who knows what could possibly happen? Like who knows what horrors will be unleashed? Um, and I think in the original novella, it's uh, the, the the reason that Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde can be a little bit difficult to adapt um, directly as it was originally written. Um, it's been it's been adapted, I think, over 100 times at this point, um, but almost no adaptation has ever tried to adapt it directly from the source material because the original story hinges on the fact that the audience doesn't know that Dr. Jekyll is Mr. Hyde. Right. And of course, now everyone does. Um, So if you if, you know, I think you comparatively, you know, like the Empire Strikes Back, um, of course, you know, Luke, I am your father. That's technically a big spoiler. But I feel like the the story is still a big dramatic thing that plays well, even if everyone already knows that line. Um, Jekyll and Hyde, it it falls apart a teensy bit if you already know (laughs) the ending. Um, But taken as it was originally written. The the main character, his name is Mr. Utterson, and his job is to kind of investigate this murder that has happened um, with this mysterious criminal named Mr. Hyde. And he's trying to figure out, you know, who who is he? What is his mysterious connection, Dr. Jekyll? His fatal flaw is that he is a very, very, not terribly imaginative, very classically Victorian man who likes to put things in little boxes. And he can't conceive that... Um, someone as upright and gentlemanly as Dr. Jekyll could possibly, you know, be or even truly be closely associated with a, you know, a lowly criminal like Mr. Hyde. One of the things that was emerging at this time um, was this idea of social Darwinism. Um, You know, a few years previously, you know, Darwin and evolution had really come into the forefront. And one of the unfortunate outgrowths of outgrowths of that discovery um, was that people kind of immediately started to attempt to apply the, the rules of evolution to humans in a super immediately racist way. Um, <laughs> just like of it was course. basically the start of eugenics and this, this idea of like, you know, like uh, basically white people are better than everybody else. Um, and part of that was this idea that like criminals are not merely criminals. Um, the idea emerged that criminals are in fact kind of a subspecies, a subhuman of humanity and that there was actually some kind of biological difference between like, you know, upright gentlemen and, you know, the criminal classes. And the cool thing about Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is it really kind of troubles that idea. And it shows that like, no, like people are a lot more complex than we like to imagine. And of course that's, thankfully we don't have that theory around 
anymore, at least, you know, not in its, it's particularly virulent form. Unfortunately, you know, the, I feel like the ripples of eugenics and all that crap is still, you know, around us to I this feel day. Like some like rich tech bros still believe that though. Oh, they, I oh, mean, we're in the world do. of publishing and publishing is, you know, traditionally very white, very cis mm-hmm. and uh, with book bands like we oh see goodness. like those. Yeah. Uh, yeah, those ideals being still pushed today, yeah. unfortunately. Yeah. But progress has been made. Yeah. So we have to be a little bit hopeful. <laughs> yeah, I learned something I feel, yeah. today as mm-hmm. like a non-literary person because I've never actually mm-hmm. read Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. I've only you know, what I know of that story is through cultural osmosis. And that's, mm-hmm. you know, already going. I didn't realize it was like a M. Night, M. Night Shyamalan twist ending, like Fight Club. It is, yeah. It was a big deal in the, when it first came out. It was, it, was a, it was a smash hit. You know, it was yeah. very, very popular when it first came out. I love your Dr. Jekyll, by the way, because your Dr. Jekyll is uh, introduced as like this very, like, sparkly gentleman Mm -hmm. who could just like charm everyone and i feel like that is a jekyll that i haven't really seen before because i feel like a lot of jekylls that i've seen in adaptations they've kind of been like very uh introverted and very Mm -hmm. like book nerdy and then uh their hide is like you know more outgoing more um like more more charismatic, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, can you tell us how you developed your Jekyll? And also, like, he's the founder of Society of Arcane Sciences, which mm-hmm. is uh, a haven for rogue slash mad scientists. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm curious as to, like, where this idea came from as well. Yeah, so I mean, my my interpretation of Dr. Jekyll evolved over a super long time. Um, like I've been, like I said, into Jekyll and Hyde since I was a teenager. Um, I was really into the, there was a Jekyll and Hyde musical that was out in the 90s. Oh my uh, God. Basically, the, oh my yeah. God. I feel like I've heard of this and it must have been like. It's basically like Phantom of the Opera meets Sweeney Todd is how I would describe yes, it. Like tonally. Yeah. It's very that, very like super gothic, super dramatic. Um, and that very much has like the tortured Dr. Jekyll, which is kind of the classic Hamlet-esque Jekyll that has been very common in adaptations. Um, part of the reason I wanted to go in a different direction um, was to really kind of double down on those themes of the book of, you know, like to sell him as this kind of perfect, almost impossibly perfect gentleman um, so that, you know, when it's his his secret is eventually revealed, spoiler alert, um, that to really kind of retain that sense of shock and surprise. That, like, I feel like in a way, if he's already like super stressed out all the time and super um super tortured it's kind of not as surprising it's like oh yeah that guy obviously has secrets you know (laughs) whereas you know if he seems to have it all together then in a way i feel like there's more for more room for him to fall and i just think that's a more interesting and compelling story um also i just think it's fun to torture your characters you know um and it was just it's just more fun um, because like over the course of the story i do really tear him down i do really bring him quite low and if you really you know, have him start off at a high point, the guy just has a further and more dramatic and I think interesting fall to have. Um, and then speaking of um, the Society for Arcane Sciences, that um, that kind of grew out of my general love for Victorian mad science, wanting to bring more characters in, wanting to really incorporate um, kind of a whole world built around mad science. Um and also, when I again, when I was in high school, um, I did a little bit of role playing, just like online role playing. Um, and the society kind of grew out of um, wanting to bring all these different characters together. You know, like 
Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, of course, Dr. Frankenstein, Dr. Moreau, all these different characters and um, it sort of evolved from there. Yeah. I mean, uh, let's, let's talk about this idea of respectability in your story, mm-hmm. because that's the reason why Dr. Jekyll founded a society, society of arcane sciences. He's hoping mm-hmm. to sway the public's judgment on mad scientists. And um, it just kind of reminded me of rep sweats in the Asian American community, mm-hmm. like where mm-hmm. our privilege, like, relies heavily on like our performance and yeah. just, like how un- unthreatening we can we can be and it could just mm-hmm. be taken away at any moment was that something that came across your mind when you were uh writing oh absolutely i mean i feel like that was very much the direct inspiration not only from you know growing up asian american but also again growing up queer i think there's so many um discussions about respectability politics in the queer community as well but certainly my first ex- exposure to that would have been through you know uh growing up japanese american and being a mom you know being expected to be the model minority that kind of you know work twice as hard to get half as much all of that that was so just part of the kind of mythology of growing up I think, um, you know, my mom was always very, a very, very driven career person and just the stories of, you know, the things she had to put up with in her career, um, the things she had to kind of persevere against. Um, I think she was very, you know, very proud of what she had accomplished. Um, but the idea that you will encounter adversity and the only real way forward in, unfortunately, is to kind of just grin and bear it and just like force your way through and just be as good as physically possible was something that I was always really taught, um, which I kind of push against to some extent now um, being in my industry, but also specifically um, being uh, unionized, if that makes it's kind of a weird, weird tangent. But like there's an element of like, mm, actually, don't work a billion hours and don't kill yourself at your work because work will never, never love you back. Um, but I was very much raised to kind of believe that like you should always be giving 110% and always putting your best pace first. And um, it's a lot of pressure, <laughs> you know? Yeah. As someone who's worked in arts organizations, supporting artists, doing programming and things like that, I really related to the plight of Dr. Jekyll as he's like being confronted with Dr. Frankenstein, who in your version is a, is a gender bent version, who is trying <laughs> to convince all his like all his wards that like you don't need to be respectable. You just need passion mm-hmm. and that will be enough. I'm like, no, but they also need to live with money. Yeah, like it's 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 a very complicated, like the dynamic that I build in between Dr. Jekyll and Dr. Frankenstein, um, I feel like are kind of the two wolves inside <laughs> of me. Um, the Dr. Jekyll wolf tends to went out more in my case because like I am someone who I'm pretty practical I think in real life and I'm kind of like yo you got to eat you got to live you got to find someone to pay you but at the same time I think if I lean too much into that then you can lose kind of the passion you also lose the fact that there are some people who cannot afford to who will never fit into that box and that you know if you choose a respectable route you're going to leave some people behind and so I feel like it's it's this really tricky balancing act of, you know, ha- knowing how to walk the line, but also pushing for progress so the people who cannot walk that line one day can also come in. Uh, Jekyll at one point uh, says to Jasper, who is our sweet little werewolf <laughs> boy in the comics, um, it doesn't matter who you are at the start, you can remake yourself into anything you want to be. And this is 
this seems like a very optimistic statement, but also <laughs> I feel like it is very tiring because mm-hmm. you you it's like how many times do I have to remake myself? Mm-hmm. Like how long am I going to have this imposter sh- syndrome? So like my question to you is like, do you believe identity is something that like needs to always change in association to our fears and insecurities? Or do you think there is like, I don't know, like an end result, um, Mm -hmm. like this ideal identity that we can finally settle on? Yeah, um, I think when I wrote that line, I really wanted that to be kind of like a complicated line where I think in that space, it's actually something that is very helpful for Jasper, who is very, very lost and feels so completely out of his depth mm-hmm. and is just like drowning in imposter syndrome. So I think in that in that moment, it's very encouraging to him like, oh, no, you can actually um, you can change and you can find a way to fit in. Um, but, you know, it's not something that can apply universally through life. Because I think like I I think uh, to your point it is super tiring and there is a space where you're just kind of like, how many times do I have to change myself to fit? When will it be enough? And I think I'm in a space in my career right now where I feel like I have kind of not quite gotten to the limit permanently, but definitely to a little bit of a space of burnout, you know, where it's just like, yo, like if I just change and change and change and change, what if there's a point where it's not enough? And then what, you know? What if, or what if I change and change and change and it doesn't, it's just never enough and I'm still not able to make it. Um, also, I think, you know, in, in many cases, the change is often, you know, fundamentally unfair. You know, in my industry, um, there have been a lot of times when you, as a queer person, have to either sneak in any representation you want or just admit or just hide it and admit that the industry right now is not cool with it. You know, unfortunately, there is a chilling effect with, you know, all the uh, anti-trans protests going on where now studios are a lot more hesitant and they're a lot more, you know, doubtful about diversity. Um, We're seeing that, you know, from like a racial diversity space as well, where, you know, kind of for for a few years, it felt like, you know, they were really going to get a great push in the wake of Black Lives Matter and Stop Asian Hate, where it seemed like these conversations were happening and studios were finally able to take a chance on diverse voices. But once that all died down, suddenly all those, a lot of the opportunities went away. And I think it's a balancing act where I do still feel like it's worthwhile to fight and to stay in the fight. Um, but I think there also needs to be a space where you're not giving so much of yourself that you don't have anything left. And that if this doesn't succeed, then you have absolutely nothing. You know, I think it's important to have boundaries in life. This is kind of the long and short of it. Yeah. I mean, as we and I have both been covering Asian American arts and media for over a decade, at least. Mm. And it is, it can be disheartening to see, progress come and progress go and then you know seeing where we are now where we're literally fighting again for just a basic representation right mm-hmm. um yeah i mean it's it's good to see that there's still people out there willing to take a chance or i mean it's not even take a chance like willing to you know walk the walk in, in the publishing industry um and in yeah yeah i think what's helpful for me is to have people who are from you know who share your identity, who are also in the same industry as you, whether that be publishing or animation or comics or whatnot, 
that you can just like vent to, like, because <laughs> I feel like, no, the industry will never fully love you back or at least not forever. And I've found that at least it's easier when I can go in with somebody who is either at my side, who can back me up, or at least I can go to later and be like, yo, that was bullshit. Because um, I was on a project in animation recently where, uh, not to give too many details um, for, to not in- incriminate anybody, but there were some diversity issues in the writing. And at first um, I was very early on in this project. And so it was kind of just me going up against um, people who are not of my background, um, kind of, you know, cis, white, het, et cetera, folks, and trying to bring up these issues and just absolutely running into a brick wall. And that was really, really stressful for me. But, you know, as a result, those issues stayed in. And months and months later, um, our crew came on and our crew was much more diverse. And so we tried to bring it up again as a group. And in the end, it was still very stressful. Um, you know, the people we we're trying to talk to were still, you know, not quite ready to hear it. Um, but one, going up as a group, it made us, our voices stronger, but also just emotionally knowing that I wasn't going crazy and that I wasn't like, I, I didn't have to have the thought in my head of like, what if I'm being oversensitive? What if I'm overthinking this? What if I'm doing something terrible to my own career by even attempting this? Having people to back you up and just to validate what you're hearing and what you're saying, like that makes it so much easier, you know? Yeah, there's a lot of gaslighting in the mm-hmm. creative industries. Um, <laughs> that's mm-hmm. just unfortunately the reality that we live in. But like you said, having a community behind you, having a village yeah. behind you, yeah. it really mm-hmm. helps. And um, just speaking of community, I mean, your your comic has been alive since like 2015. It, yeah. like, you, you have a community. You have mm-hmm. fans of this series before it even released in mm-hmm. uh, like a printed form. So how has it been just like uh, going from just like, a, I guess, like Tumblr fandom mm-hmm. to now having like this bigger community that can actually purchase a physical copy of your book? Yeah, I mean, it's going to sound cheesy, but like I feel like right now they're the main thing keeping me going, man. Like, I feel like I feel so fortunate that I already had this online fan base. And I think that's one of the fully unexpected, but kind of the, the best aspects of of making it as a webcomic first that I don't have to kind of like hustle for first readers. Like, please pick up my book. Like, please take a chance. And people have already taken a chance on it. They know what they're getting into. Um, And I think in publishing, there's kind of the sense of like, well, why would they buy it if they could already read it for free? Um, But I think, you know, books like Heartstopper, like Laura Olympus have shown that like an online audience will show up in the stores. Um, Well, maybe not like a physical store, but like, you know, on, uh, Amazon or hopefully an independent bookstore. Um, and that was definitely the case here. Um, you know, I've been saying that I was given the example of, you know, having a community around trying to bring stuff up in animation. Um, I'm definitely more of a novice in the graphic novel or the publishing space. So I don't really have um, a, a community I can kind of fall back on in that space. So my readership has very much been that rock. You know, there's whenever, and I've definitely had a lot of like imposter syndrome moments, a lot of self-doubt after publishing and being able to fall back on this core readership that is there for me has been honestly like the, been so, so helpful. It's been so great. Um, Also, I can incorporate little elements of, I see it as kind of like an 
act of service slash almost like a meditative process um, where I did a little pre-order campaign for them. Again, because they really showed up, I had like 1,500 of them to fill out and to mail out that I just finished yesterday. So that's finally done. But it it took like three months. (laughs) It was so long. Um, But there was something just really nice and kind of like gratitude practicing-y about, you know, filling out a little book plate for everybody, doing a little dedication, and then just like mailing out physically like a little thank you to everybody who's been there this whole time. It's been really great. Well, volume one is out now. It ends on a cliffhanger. So cool. Thanks for that. Um, (laughs) We mentioned this comic already existed. How much, um, like, are you working on volume two or how much work do you have to put into to, you know, to, Mm -hmm. I guess, transfer this into graphic novel form? Because your chapters are a lot longer than your average webcomic, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, to um, compared to starting graphic novels from scratch, it's not nearly as much work, of course. Um, but there is like a, a decent amount of work that has to go into uh, translating it to uh, print form. I'm actually finishing off volume two, hopefully by this Friday. Um, so um and some of that is like I had to resize all the font, which was a bitch. Uh, that absolutely sucked because, um, you know, it's, it's a pretty packed in comic. There's a lot of stuff going on. Um, so I had to resize all the font, redo all the font bubbles, um, you know, change it from RGB to CMYK, which is like a color aspect in Photoshop, um, which was a real brat as well, because <laughs> Um, one of my main characters, Mr. Hyde, his signature color is green and um, green does not like to be printed <laughs> in very bright colors. And so I'm still having to go back and be like, how do I make this work? Um, so a lot of technical stuff. Um, I also um, just to kind of make it um, just kind of a nice length for a print edition. Um, I've added in a lot of bonus material um, for book two in particular. It has a pretty extended um, little sexy vampire story in there at the end. So that's going to be a bit of fun. Um, Plus some, you know, pre-production art, just a lot of bonus stuff. And that takes time to compile and to make because I want to make it, you know, nice um, and to be, you know, an enjoyable experience for people who have already read the comic online but want something extra. I want to make it worth their while, you know. Um, but also, so volume two is almost out the door. Um, the comic pages itself have been done since early last year, um, for that one. Um, but now I'm working on volume three, which is going to be, um, a hustle, you know, (laughs) it's going to be a hustle. Well, our, our scientists find themselves in a bit of a jam at the end of the first volume. So I'm very interested to see (laughs) how that maybe, no, I'm not going to go spoil myself on the web comics, although it is right there. Mm-hmm. But uh, looking forward to um, good luck with um, finishing volumes two and three. Um, thank you so much for joining us on Book Symbol. But it was really great chatting with you. Thank you. It was so great. It was, this is so lovely. Thank you so much for having me. And that was Sage Continuo. You can check out their debut graphic novel, The Glass Scientist, Volume 1, out now at booksellers everywhere, including, as always, the Books and Boba bookshop. Um, if you go to booksandboba.com and check out our online bookstore, not only do you support the Books and Boba podcast, but also your local bookstore. So definitely check it out. And as always, you can also support us by becoming a member of our Patreon and joining our Discord server. 
Um, before we go, a quick reminder that our book club pick for December 2023, our final book club pick of the year, is Foul Lady Fortune by Chloe Gong, which is the first book of the spin-off duology of her um, original duology, um, These Violent Delights and Our Violent Ends, um, and features one of the sidekeepers from that original duology, Rosalind Lang, who has become an immortal assassin um, for the Chinese nationalist government and is sent to solve a series of murders um, connected to the Japanese invasion of mainland China during the 1930s. This, of course, is a story that takes place in a fantasy um, alternate history um, pre-war Shanghai, um, which um, longtime listeners will know is one of my favorite aesthetics for storytelling. So yeah, Rosalind is sent to um, solve a series of murders and in order to do so, has to pair up with another national spy to pose as a married couple to infiltrate a community of foreigners. So definitely a lot of themes being explored in this book. It is a time of growing civil war between the nationalists and communist governments of China, juxtaposed with influence from foreign um, imperialist powers from Russia, England, and of course Japan, and all with a fantasy twist. So I'm definitely excited to chat about this book um, next week for our discussion episode. And if you finished the book yourself and would like to add your thoughts to our discussion, um, please let us know um, on either on Goodreads or our Discord server if you are a Patreon subscriber as always we love to include um, your thoughts in our episodes whenever possible but yeah that'll do it for our last author chat of 2023 Uh, thank you so much for listening and we'll see y'all next time bye everybody bye thanks for listening to Books and Boba this podcast was hosted by Marvin Yue and Rira Yu and edited and produced by Marvin Yue Follow the book club on Twitter and Instagram by going to at Books and Boba and engage with us on Goodreads on our Goodreads group. You can also check out past episodes of the podcast by going to booksandboba.com and by subscribing to us on your favorite podcast app. Don't forget, you can support Books and Boba and Asian American authors by purchasing books at our bookshop.org account. Check out the link in our show notes and also at booksandboba.com. Books and Boba is a proud member of the Potluck Podcast Collective, a collective of Asian American hosted podcasts featuring unique voices and stories from the Asian diaspora. Learn more about the collective and check out our fellow Potluck shows by visiting the website podcastpotluck.com. Thanks for listening. Hey, Sharon. Hey, Raman. How are folks still racist? I know, right? We're like two decades into the 21st century. Yeah. And second question, where's my jetpack? Well, I can't help you there, but have I got a podcast for you. Modern Minorities is a show where each week, my longtime pal Raman and I uncover common and uncommon truths that we all need to hear for our majority brains and ears. Yeah. Sharon and I have spoken to doctors, lawyers, directors, climate activists, angry Asians, athletes, chefs, writers. Folks who are black, brown, gay, straight, and everything in between. Past guests have included comedian Margaret Cho, Southern Poverty Law Center journalist Geraldine Mariba, comics creator Jean Lun Yang, and many, many more. We've even talked about Ramadan, Black History Month, Kamala Khan, and Robin being queer. It's like we're trying to solve racism with the podcast. Challenge accepted. So check out Modern Minorities at modmypod.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Remember, we're all modern minorities, but we're no one's model minority. Thank you.